The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore. Part 3, The 1800s, The Beginnings of Psychology, Psychophysics. Again and again, philosophers stated unequivocally that psychology could never become a science. The activities and the contents of the mind could not be measured, and therefore an objectivity such as that achieved in physics and chemistry was out of reach. No less a philosopher than Immanuel Kant declared that measuring the mind is impossible, so a science of psychology is also impossible. Psychology would forever remain subjective, perhaps just a variant of philosophy. But all of this would finally change in the early 1800s. Four German physiologists were directly responsible for the initial applications of experimentation to the human mind. Hermann von Helmholtz, Ernst Weber, Gustav Theodor Fechner, and Wilhelm Wundt. Now before we discuss each of these men, we should probably ask the question, why was Germany the birthplace of psychology? There are four likely reasons why psychology first flourished in Germany, all of which have to do with the German openness to experimentation on the human mind. First, the Germans used a broad definition of science. They readily accepted biology as a science, opening the door to experimental physiology. Studies in experimental physiology led to studies of sensation that paved the way for psychology to study the workings of the mind and ultimately behavior. The second reason was the German temperament. The German temperament was fond of exactitude and precision, and this led to exquisite data collection. Once that exactitude was applied to studies of consciousness, scientific psychology was not far behind. The third reason that psychology started in Germany was because German universities embraced the principles of academic freedom in research and in teaching. This encouraged the growth of universities with the most advanced scientific laboratory equipment. Fourth, and related to number three, faculty positions at German universities were hired positions. So, one could earn a living as a research scientist. Now, this was not possible in other parts of Europe, such as Britain, where gentlemen scientists or men of wealth and privilege were the only ones with both the time and the money to pursue the sciences. Francis Galton, Charles Darwin may come immediately to mind as examples of these gentlemen scientists. On the other hand, the emphasis in German universities was publish or perish. In other words, unless one was churning out publications for scientific journals, one would not be long for the scientific field. These four reasons help explain why German university professors were directly responsible for the growth and development of scientific psychology.
Hermann von Helmholtz, 1821 to 1894, was a German physiology professor at the University of Bonn and later at the University of Heidelberg. During his long career, von Helmholtz contributed to research in neural impulse, vision, and audition. He revised and extended a theory of color vision, still known as the young Helmholtz theory. His work on audition and the perception of tones is still cited in psychology texts. And his acoustic research, published in On the Sensations of Tone in 1863, indirectly contributed to the inventions of the wireless telegraph and the radio. Hermann von Helmholtz wanted to know how fast does a nerve impulse travel? He was not the first to ask or to speculate an answer to this question. Descartes said that the impulse was instantaneous, approaching the speed of light. Georg Müller speculated that it was slightly slower, but still too fast to measure. However, using a myograph, Hermann von Helmholtz recorded the time lag between nerve stimulation and the contraction of a muscle in frog legs. He measured the speed of the neural impulse as between 50 and 100 meters per second, or about 90 feet per second. Not only was that far slower than the speed of light, it's even slower than the speed of sound. Of course, considering that an average male is around six feet tall, a speed of 90 feet per second would be more than quick enough to speed from the tip of the toe to the brain in a fraction of a second. So the speed is plenty fast for human physiology. On the other hand, attempts to measure the speed of the neural impulse in human beings was not as successful as measuring frog legs. Von Helmholtz eventually abandoned his work with human beings due to the variability of his findings. What Hermann von Helmholtz did do, however, was to demonstrate that it was possible to experiment in and to measure a psychophysiological process. All that remained was to systematically apply quantitative methodology to the rest of the life sciences. Ernst Weber 1795 to 1878, was born on June 24 in Wittenberg, Germany, the third of 13 children. Weber received his doctorate from the University of Leipzig in 1815, and his study was in physiology. He began teaching at the University of Leipzig right after his graduation and continued teaching there until he retired in 1871. Ernst Weber discovered that stimulating nerves can inhibit as well as excite. Not only does the electrical stimulation of a nerve cause a frog leg to jump, electrical stimulation of the vagal nerve in the brain actually slows the heartbeat and activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which quiets and calms the body. Weber's research was predominantly concerned with the sense of touch and kinesthesia, which is the experience of muscle position and movement. 
he was the first to clearly demonstrate the existence of kinesthesia and showed that touch was actually a conglomerate sense composed of the senses for pressure, temperature, and pain. But Ernst Weber is best known for his experiments published in his book, The Sense of Touch, a classic text of experimental physiology, in which he systematically mapped the skin sensitivity of the human body. It was during this research that Weber discovered the differential sensitivity of the skin, which is now called the two-point threshold. Weber described this two-point threshold as, quote, the threshold at which two points of stimulation can be distinguished as such, end quote. It is a measure of the smallest distance noticeable to the touch on various parts of the body. For example, the tongue has the smallest two-point threshold, about one millimeter. The lips and the fingertips are similarly sensitive. At the other extreme is the skin on the back. A calipers with two sharpened pins has to be positioned more than 60 millimeters apart for the touch to be registered as two distinct points instead of one. This, of course, makes sense to evolutionary biology, considering that back sensitivity does not have much survival value, where fingertip sensitivity certainly does. A second technique that Weber developed involved kinesthesia. The just noticeable difference is the smallest difference in weight that a person is capable of perceiving through holding two objects. Now, Weber discovered that the just noticeable difference was actually a constant fraction. It's a function of the weights involved. So, for instance, if you are holding a 40-pound weight in one hand, you will be able to recognize that a 41-pound weight in the other hand is, in fact, different. But if you are holding a 20-pound weight you could detect a difference of a mere one-half pound. In other words, as regards weight, we could recognize a 1 to 40 difference, no matter the original weights. Now, Weber was thrilled by this. There is an absolute lawfulness to perception. This was called the Weber ratio. And later, Gustav Fechner would call it Weber's law. It was the first law relating a physical stimulus with a mental experience. As such, it was the first truly quantitative law of psychology. Gustav Fechner Gustav Fechner was born April 1st, 1801. His father, a village pastor, died early in Gustav's childhood. So he, along with his mother and brother, went to live with their uncle. In 1817, at the age of 16 years old, Gustav Fechner went off to study medicine at the University of Leipzig, where Weber was teaching. 
he received his medical degree in 1822 at the age of 21. But Fechner's interests moved to physics and mathematics. So he made his living tutoring, translating, and occasionally lecturing. After writing a significant paper on electricity in 1831, Fechner was invited to become a professor of physics at Leipzig. There, he became friends with a number of people, including Wilhelm Wundt, and his interest shifted again, this time to psychology, and especially the study of vision. As a young physicist at Leipzig, Gustav Fechner began doing observations of the sun. Fechner made the unfortunate decision to attempt to observe the surface of the sun through a telescope. He damaged his eyes so badly that he went blind. After this, he sank into a deep depression, and the doctors told him that they thought his blindness would be irreversible. In 1840, he had a nervous breakdown, and he had to resign his position at Leipzig due to his severe depression. He moved back to live with his parents. At his worst, Fechner stayed in his room alone, avoiding the light which hurt his eyes, and even painted his room black. After several months, however, his sight slowly began to return. In letters to friends, he spoke of how he rededicated himself to what he called his In Praise of God project. This project was about sensation. He concluded that the same God who gives us the physical world also gives us the internal psychic world. While lying in bed one morning, October 22, 1850, Fechner suddenly realized that it was indeed possible to connect the measurable physical world with the mental world, an arena that had always been assumed to be inaccessible to scientific investigation. He wrote, quote, Man stands midway between the souls of plants and the souls of stars, who are angels. Natural laws are just the modes of the unfolding of God's perfection. End quote. As his condition improved, he returned to writing and began performing endless experiments, mostly using himself as the subject. Like many people at the time, Fechner found Spinoza's double aspectism compelling, and he found in panpsychism something akin to a personal religion. Using the pseudonym Dr. Mises, he wrote a number of satires about the medicine and philosophy of his day. But he also used it to communicate, often in an amusing way, his spiritual perspective. As a panpsychist, he believed that all of nature was alive and capable of awareness to one degree or another. Even the planet Earth itself, he believed, had a soul. He called this the day view and opposed it to the night view of materialism. Fechner's worldview was highly animistic. He felt the thrill of life everywhere, in plants, earth, stars, the total universe. Following this reasoning, he used 
proportions in nature to demonstrate that certain abstract forms and proportions are naturally pleasing to our senses. This mathematical proportion would be called the phi ratio, also called the golden mean or the number of God. But to Fechner, it illustrated the absolute lawfulness and mathematical precision with which the world worked. And the human mind was one part of that physical world. Fechner's goal was to establish a precise scientific relationship between the physical and the psychic, hence psychophysics. It was Spinoza's double aspectism that led him to study and name psychophysics, which he defined as the study of the systematic relationships between physical events and mental events. And why should we assume that such a relationship exists? Because of Weber's ratio. When Fechner reviewed it, however, he called it Weber's law. Fechner then was fortified by Weber with his lawful ratio and the two-point threshold. But Fechner wanted to determine a law of sensation, not simply a law of discrimination. And this would require designing a new way to experiment upon sensation. Fechner began by identifying what he called the absolute threshold, the lowest intensity at which a percipient could detect a stimulus. Of course, the absolute threshold is very small. For the sensation of touch, for instance, an individual can feel if the wing of a fly is dropped against his cheek. In a quiet room, a normal person can hear the buzzing of a mosquito from five feet away. For the sensation of vision, the eyes require a very small amount of light in order to work. So to illustrate the absolute threshold, let us begin in a room that is totally dark. We would find the absolute threshold by slowly adding units of energy in the form of light. First, we add one quantum of light. The subject in the darkened room cannot see it because that is too little light for the eyes to work. And so we add a second quantum, and a third, and a fourth. Eventually, with enough light, the subject first reports that she can see the light in the darkened room. This, then, is the absolute threshold for the perception of light. It is the minimal amount of energy that the nervous system requires in order for the eyes to sense light. We could then continue adding units of light until the subject reports that the light is now just a little brighter. And this is the first just noticeable difference. We can continue adding units of light until we arrive at the second just noticeable difference, and then the third and the fourth and so on. We could keep adding units of light and just noticeable differences until we reach the intensity of light in this room. Now this implies that any stimulus can be described 
relative to a baseline of the absolute threshold plus a certain number of just noticeable differences. In 1860, Fechner capped his career by publishing The Elements of Psychophysics. In this book, he introduced a mathematical expression for an integration of Weber's ratio, or as Fechner called it, Weber's law. Using integral calculus, there is a common integral, log base e for a given x. We can multiply through by a constant to get to log base 10. This constant Fechner called k. So the expression looked like this. s equals k log r, in which s is the experienced sensation. k is a constant, and r is the German reiz, meaning stimulus. Therefore, the sensation equals a constant, which differs for each modality, such as vision, hearing, or touch, times the logarithm of a measurement of the intensity of the stimulus. Or said more simply, sensation grows in proportion to the logarithm of the stimulus intensity. Fechner, along with Wilhelm Wundt and Hermann von Helmholtz, is recognized as one of the founders of modern experimental psychology. What Weber and Fechner demonstrated, what makes them far more significant than just Weber's law, is that psychological events are in fact tied to measurable physical events in a systematic way. And this is something which everyone had thought was impossible. Because the mind was susceptible to measurement, psychology could become a quantified science after all. In his later days, Fechner experienced failing health, and in 1844 he was officially declared an invalid and given a pension by the University of Leipzig. Once again, however, his health recovered, and he remained at Leipzig in excellent health with continuing important scientific contributions until his death on November 28, 1887, at the age of 86. At his funeral, Wilhelm Wundt delivered his eulogy, saying, quote, We shall not look upon his like again. End quote. By the late 1800s, natural science methods were being used to study mental phenomenon. The importance of the senses had been established by British empiricists and astronomers. German physiologists described the function of the senses, and the positivist zeitgeist encouraged the melding of philosophy and physiology. The final touch was provided by Wilhelm Wundt, who formally brought together all of these threads in the founding of psychology.